Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Long Distance Work Life Podcast, where we try to make sense of remote work, hybrid work, work from home, all of that foolishness to keep the weasels at bay. Thank you for joining us. As always, this is a Marissa-less episode because I actually have a guest today, uh, and I'm going to introduce her now. This is Dr. Mary O'Connor. She is the brains behind Vori Health. And what I thought we would do today is talk less traditional remote work and more how other fields are dealing with what all of us are dealing. And nowhere are we seeing more of this radical change than in the area of telemedicine. So uh, Mary, if you would uh, just introduce yourself real quick, what does Vori Health do? And then we'll get into the discussion. Great, Wayne, I'm just delighted to be with you and your listeners and viewers today. Um, so my name is Mary O'Connor. I'm an orthopedic surgeon by background. I am the chief medical officer and co-founder of Vori Health. And we are a virtual musculoskeletal medical practice, meaning we take care of people with spine and joint and muscle problems, which as you know, are extremely common, especially as we get older. As I sit waiting for my knee replacement, I can completely understand. Here's the thing that fascinated me and why we wanted to have the conversation. Uh, there are two things. One is that you are a completely virtual business, and that is fascinating. The other thing is when we think about knees and backs and that kind of thing, we always think of this as very hands-on, like you need to be there, right? Uh, how do you do... <laughs> orthopedic work and not be in the room with the joint that you're talking about? So, and that's a great question, the one I get frequently. And um, the answer is pretty straightforward. There's a tremendous amount that you can do through virtual only uh, interactions with patients, number one. The first thing that a lot of patients and people don't know or recall is that the majority of the decision-making process by their doctor in terms of what their doctor thinks is going on is based on the patient's history. So the history is really important. How long was your back hurting? Did you injure it? What makes it worse? What makes it better? Those kinds of things. The physical exam is still important, but there's a huge amount of it that you can do actually, you know, virtually. So there's, there's very little limitations. And most of the decision-making process is going to be based on the information that you can obtain virtually. And when my orthopedic surgeon colleagues challenge me on this point, I will give them a perfect example of a, someone who injured their knee, okay? And the question is, did they tear their anterior cruciate ligament? That decision on whether to get an MRI scan of their knee to prove if they had a tear, is going to be based 95% on the history of the injury and looking at the knee. You don't have to put your hands on to do some ligamentous testing to drive the decision-making about the MRI. So we're the first to say not all care can be delivered virtually, but a surprising amount can. And where that becomes so important is particularly for your audience because 
working people just don't have time. Like it is, it is a huge amount of time to actually go in to see your doctor or your physical therapist out of your work day. And so offering these virtual services is extremely convenient and time efficient for patients. And they, they really appreciate that. There is, as I was thinking about this interview, there is a real corollary between a lot of the remote work that we had to do suddenly when COVID hit and the move to telemedicine. One of those things is there's a lot of skepticism about can it be done, right? And, and you've yeah. already uh, addressed some of that. Tell me what happened kind of in the zeitgeist is the wrong word, but it sounds impressive and it's the only one I can think of. What shifted people's thinking when COVID hit? Because that really pushed telemedicine over the Rubicon like it did so yeah. much remote work. Well, obviously what happened is people were afraid to go in for in-person services and clinics shut down. Um, you know, I was... Uh, where I was working at Yale at the time. And, you know, we literally just shut everything down except for true emergency services. And that was really challenging because patients still needed care. And so it was a phone call or we started doing um, Zoom calls, right? Because, because the, the technology and the functionality of telemedicine existed long before we got into the COVID pandemic but it was never embraced by the medical profession for a couple of reasons. One, change is hard. Why change if what I'm doing, you know, I just want to keep doing what I'm doing. And secondly, and what was very important is that um, the federal government, Medicare and commercial insurers were not paying clinicians for telemedicine services. So when the pandemic came, legislation was introduced that basically said, okay, everybody is gonna now pay for telemedicine services. And that was obviously critically important. One of the things that I find really interesting about this is there was this, when telemedicine started, part of the resistance was, well, it's making the best of a bad situation, right? I can't go into the doctor, so I guess I'll get to see the doctor. And there's this mindset, just as a lot of remote work was, well, we can still get our work done, but it's not as good as being in the office. You actually have identified some real advantages. I mean, one of them is the convenience to the patient, but in terms of the way that your team works together, there's been some real advantages to telemedicine, which makes this not just, you know, making the best of something, but actually making it better. Wayne, absolutely. So, you know, what we can do with a virtual platform is something that actually cannot realistically happen in the in-person settings. So when patients come to us, and, and we're very, I'll digress for a moment, we're very focused on what we call the biopsychosocial model, because we, we understand that, that patients are like whole beings, right? And their health is influenced not just by um, their injury or their back pain, but by their sleep and their nutrition and their mindset. And so we know 
that we have a much better chance of getting that patient better in our model if we are focused on many things that influence that patient's health. So I'll just do back pain as an example. We know that upwards in some studies, 50% of low back surgeries are inappropriate. That is a shocking number. Now, I am not saying that my spine surgeon colleagues are evil or bad people, but I'm a surgeon. And when patients would come to see me, it's really kind of a binary decision. Do you need surgery? Can I do surgery to help you or not? And surgeons see patients through the lens of that viewpoint. Surgeons are not typically well-trained on non-operative care these days. So there is a bias towards patients getting surgery that could be avoided. And that's what the research shows, right? So we said, well, we should do something about this one. It's really bad for patients. It harms patients. 7.6% of those patients that have low back surgery are back in the OR for a second operation within the first year. That's just like astonishing in this tragic way to me. So we bring patients in and we give them a care team. Again, you can do this in the virtual environment. You cannot do it practically in an in-person setting. So they have a health coach in the first 60 minute visit, you're gonna see your health coach, you're gonna see your doctor, you're gonna see your physical therapist, and we're gonna get you started on a care plan that focuses on what matters to you, not just what is the matter with you. So Wayne, maybe what the what is the matter with you is you have back pain, but why does that matter to you? It matters to you because you wanna play with the grandchildren or you wanna get out there and walk after dinner, right, with your wife or something. And so we focus on getting you to do those activities that bring you joy and add value to your life. And that allows us to actually incorporate your preferences, the patient's preferences and the patient's values into this whole process. You can't, and then, and then we deliver it all through your app or on the web, however you wanna access our virtual services. So it allows, a virtual platform allows us to innovate in the delivery of care in ways that you simply couldn't in an in-person setting. In a really minor example, maybe it's not so minor, um, one of the things that a client told me is it's easier for them to coach people because you see them in their natural habitat. Right? You, you can see what their homes look like and are they working at a decent workspace or are they at the north end of the dining room table on a folding chair? You, know, you, can, you can see what their environment looks like and that's got to be an advantage in medicine as well, right? I mean, it absolutely is. For example, you know, we have, I'll just use an example. We have a fall reduction program because falls in the elderly, I don't, I don't like to use, I should, I rephrase that in the older population. Okay. Um, are, are deficit. Tell them what you want. They are elder than I mean, uh, the know, rest of as, the population. As I get closer and closer to that category, I become more sensitive to the label. All well, right? Your definition of what is older certainly okay. takes a beating. But having personally operated on, I don't know, a couple thousand people with hip fractures, 
right? And how devastating that is to the patient and their family, okay? Fall prevention is huge. And so when we can see patients in their home, it is so much easier to help them to help them craft an effective fall reduction program. That's just one example. The other point that I'll I mean, make- and, and just to be clear, you're talking about things like, take your phone and show me what your tub looks like. Yeah, take your, take your laptop, show me. Show me what your living, living room looks like, right? Show me, show me where you walk in your house, right? Let's look at those rugs, are they trip hazards? Let's look at your bathroom, you know? Do you have, you know, is it safe? What's your risk of falling there? But the other thing that I'll mention is that I think that we innately feel more comfortable in our homes, in our own environment. And I think the more comfortable the patient is, the more forthcoming they are with their, their really trusted personal information. Because, you know, healthcare is a very personal interaction. You know, you share things with your doctor that you don't share with anybody else. And the more comfortable the patient is, the more likely they are to, to share important information. Well, this is really critical. And maybe the last really deep dive part of this conversation is tr the level of trust required to make this work. And it's interesting because your population is more demographically advanced, since we're playing euphemism theater, <laughs> they're generally older people who are less comfortable with technology, generally, um, and certainly have lived 50, 60, 70, however many years under the traditional medical system. So this is a pretty radical change. Um, how do you, as clinicians, prepare to help build trust Okay. I mean, other than the fact that they're in their own environment, which helps, but how do you actively build trust with clients to help overcome that resistance? So just a couple of points. We take care of a lot of young people too. I mean, we see patients 18 years of age and older, and the next year we'll move into pediatrics. Okay. So we take care of plenty of people. And, and you know, of course, it, as a general statement, I know I'm biased, being biased here, but in general younger individuals are far more comfortable with technology and a lot of virtual interactions, right? Um, but listen, there's plenty of 20 and 30 year olds that hurt their back or have knee pain or shoulder pain um, that love what we do. Um, the key to trust in, my, in what we do and in my experience as being a doctor and surgeon for many, many years is First, the patient has to know that we're really supporting them and that, we're, that we are committed to doing the best that we can for them. So that is the essence of trust between the patient and the doctor, right? I am there and you, I am advocating for you. I am not focused on doing something the insurance company wants me to do. I'm there to give you the best care that I possibly can. You can establish that through a virtual connection, just like you can in person. Secondly, I really do believe that our model where we're focused on, on that biopsychosocial approach and looking at that, the individual more holistically helps 
helps reinforce that trust. Because for example, Wayne, in the, in the low back pain example, right? If, you know, if I was the queen of the universe and I could take everybody with low back pain and simply improve their sleep, right? No, no meds, no PT, nothing else but improve their sleep. I would lower their back pain. So our health coaches will help patients focus on that. But in the real world setting, doctors, spine doctors and surgeons and physical therapists, they don't talk about that. They don't use that lever to help drive improvement. Why? Because they don't have the infrastructure to do it, right? They don't have a health coach to say, okay, Mary, let's, let's talk about your sleep. Let's talk about little small changes that you can make that are going to add up over time, right? Because we use a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy models with uh, our health coaches interacting with patients because you have to make the change doable for people and then, and then they can do it. And then, you know, when they see success, it's easier to get to the next level. Thank you so much, uh, doctor. I, I'm hoping that our listeners have been able to kind of connect the dots uh, because they sound like, you know, I'm a project manager, I'm a coder, I'm whatever I'm doing, that's different than medicine. But if we look at how do we collaborate, how do we build trust, the advantages of meeting customers where they are, um, I think there is a lot to be learned. And I I know I did, and I hope that our, our listeners got a lot out of that. Uh, for those of you who were interested, maybe, you know, you thought is that biopsychological? What's that? We're going to have notes. We are going to have a transcript available on our website, longdistanceworklife.com, as we do with all of our shows. If you are interested in learning more about remote work, if you visit longdistanceworklife.com, we have a four-part video series on demystifying remote work that we would love you to take advantage of. And if you have questions. Uh, that you would like to have answered on the show or ideas for subjects or people that you'd love us to talk to, drop us a line. You can reach me, Wayne, at KevinEikenberry.com or Marissa at KevinEikenberry.com. And you've all listened to podcasts. You know the drill. Like and subscribe so other people can find us. Dr. Mary O'Connor, Vori Health, thank you so, so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Wayne, and wishing you and all your listeners and viewers great health.